So let's talk world building, guys. Where do you start? What is the very first thing you look at when you're building a world? It's almost always Pantheon. From the Pantheon spawns creation myth, from the Pantheon spawns geography um, and uh, racial conflict and cultural conflict. All of that spawns from the Pantheon for me. And then usually I get just enough to start playing and then kind of build it as I go with the players during the sessions because building a whole world right off the bat before you start a game, that's going to take too long. You'll never actually roll dice. It's Start with something necessary. slow. You'll end up with a world that go. doesn't get lived in, right? Yeah. James? James? For me, I generally start with a major conflict the players will never deal with. That is so large that only like level 20 players would deal with. I prefer to go to building the regional map because that's going to give me more ideas for what's in the region. Because behind all that, I'm going to have in the back of my head kind of an overarching big bad evil guy. That's already there probably before I start world building. It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on Dungeons & Dragons lore. I'm Dan, and with me today are Brad and James, and this episode is called Forgotten Realms, A Torrid Tour of Toral. I came up with that one. That one was me. That one wasn't Adam. I was really happy. Wow, look at yeah. you, alliteration and everything. Haha. Uh-huh. We have previously covered all sorts of locations in D&D 5e, including the Whole Sword Coast, Waterdeep, Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, and Chult, Barovia, Ravenloft, and the Shadowfell, the Feywild, and the Astral Sea, the Underdark, and the Lower Plains, and even Eberron, Ravnica, and Theros. We've done a bunch of these episodes. You can find all of them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or dozens of other podcast apps, or you can just zip on over to the YouTube and consume the entire playlist on D&D lore that we've built there. This episode of the It's a Mimic podcast is going to bring us back to the Forgotten Realms for the third lore episode in a row and the rest of the mighty world outside of the Sword Coast. Now, although the focus for Dungeons and Dragons 5e seems to be away from it, this panel of Dungeon Masters seek to better understand Faerun, Karatur, and the rest of the adventurous possibilities Abir Toral, or Toral for short, provides, as well as look into the biggest cheese on the whole planet. But before we jump into it, I want to ask you guys, what do you hope to see from the rest of Faerun and Toral at large? Uh, for me, I want to see some diversity in environment. I want to see some diversity in culture. And I want to see a lot more flavor outside of the European Middle Ages kind of fair feel. Fair. Yeah. I mean, Sword Coast kind of has this either Middle Ages Europe to like Pacific Northwest level of yeah. uh, environment and geography. So yeah, I, I get that. And we do see that. James, what, what do you, what do you think? For me, especially with all the continents and countries around, a deeper connection between the two. As an example, like you live in Calgary, you have the joking hate for Edmonton. Everyone has that kind of cultural thing. I like seeing that throughout games. Whereas Edmonton has a completely serious, sincere hate for Calgary. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they have nothing else to do. Every single way. So. Oh, oh, are we going to fight? Because sure. you're wrong. I know where you live. Yeah, I know you know neither. where I live. I don't know where you live, though, and that's going to be a problem. But I could sit here and wait. I'll go home alone on your ass. <laughs> Anyways, so let's get into it. The last time we covered this hot pot of adventure, as we've seen 
in the Sword Coast. While quite large, the Sword Coast is a ridiculously small segment of even just the continent of Faerun. And outside of Faerun, there are a whole other continents and satellites that make up the material planes, uh, Pianeta Primo, which is prime planet. By the way, I actually looked up how to say that in uh, um, Italian. So there you go. Anyways, today we get the honor of covering all those fun little locations outside of the Sword Coast and its city-states. So before we get into other continents and everything else Toral has to offer, let's at least finish the area immediately outside the Sword Coast, i.e. the rest of Faerun. Now, should Faerun sound eerily close to fairy, that's because it is. Faerun is just a modified version of that latter word and is the ancestral home of all elves in Toral. I would assume that the reason it gets such a focused in 5e and really, sorry, I assume that this is the reason it gets such a focused in 5e and really most media about the planet of Toral. Being the elves' ancestral homeland, there are many countries, cities, and kingdoms lost to the ravages of time, i.e. forgotten realms. But let's talk about the creation of the realms before we go even into Faerun itself. And no, I don't mean creation myths. That'll be the next episode. I mean the real world creation of it. I cannot rightly and justly justify a lore episode on the Forgotten Realms without bringing up its creator, Ed Greenwood. Ed, who is originally from Toronto, and I guess we can convert, we, and I guess we could forgive him of that, started creating the Campaign 70 in 1967 as a basis for his own world-spanning series of fiction. He converted a lot of that lore into the Forgotten Realms campaign setting for Dungeons and Dragons in 1975, which then turned into a Dungeons and Dragons official product in 1986 when TSR bought the setting. The rest, as they say, falls into place rather quickly. After it's purchased by TSR in the 80s, the Forgotten Realms, which was at the time primarily focused on Faerun, was one of, if not the, favorite campaign setting for many D&D tables. Outside of the core realm of Oerth, which was Gygax and Arneson's brainchild, Faerun and Kryn seemed to flip-flop in popularity. Though uh, through to the 3.5 edition of D&D, Faerun was a well-supported alternative to the main Oerth setting until, as one of the decisions I deeply respect from Wizards, the Forgotten Realms and Faerun were made the main campaign setting, or stock setting, if you will, of Dungeons & Dragons 4th edition. While this tradition continues until today, where we see hundreds of novels, short stories, a campaign book, as well as 5E's whole shtick is primarily sourced from a lovable nerd from a Toronto suburb who just wanted a nicer place to explore than Toronto, which makes sense. Yeah. Toronto basically just sucks. Anyways, back to Ed's creation. The continent of Faerun is as varied geographically as many of our North American countries. Within Faerun, you have dense jungles, seemingly endless deserts, sky-sundering mountain ranges, and crevices that open wide to the Underdark. It'll be quite a task to fit everything from Faerun into an hour and some change podcast episode, so we're mostly going to do a survey. You may want to have a map on hand for this episode, as I'll have some geographical references here, but for the most part, let's dig in. Faerun exists from the far west of the Sea of Swords, the Moonshe Isles, and the Lands of Intrigue, more on that in a moment, to the far east over the Sea of Falling Stars to the unapproachable east and the endless wastes. It kind of ends at the Horde lands that separate um, Faerun and Karator. Now, it goes as high north as Icewind Dale and Anorox, uh, 
south through the Dale Lands, Cormier, and the Shining Plains to the Great Rift, and Shar to the south. Now, if a lot of these are new to you, that's okay. That's what we're here for today. All in all, there are many sections to Faerun that cover a vast span, much like the Sword Coast. We have countries uh, and vast plains of wildlands and wastelands alike. Now, since we started with the Sword of Coast in the last lore episode, let's dive into the Lands of Intrigue. These are the, uh, sorry, this is the area south of the Sword Coast that includes the countries of Am, Kalimshan, Mirandin, Earl Kazar, Velen, and Tethir. Basically, everything south of the Sword, uh, everything south of the Sword Coast, north of the Shining Sea, and west of the Sea of Stars, and the Lake of Steam. Let's go over these countries quickly. Anne is a mercantile country that profits off its proximity to the Sword Coast and Kalanshan. It's a mercantile heaven where humans and halflings are relatively equal, while year-round sunny, beautiful weather and rolling hills teeming with trolls seem to keep adventurers and treasure seekers pouring into the country. You had me with Anne, but uh, the trolls threw me off a little at the end there. Right? Anne is also like a direct competitor to Baldur's Gate specifically, uh, they are almost always at war. So it's it they are bordering nations. It's really cool. Kalimshan is a blisterous, blisteringly hot desert land and home to the notable city of Kalimport, one of the world's greatest ports not named Waterdeep. Kalimshan is an Arabic analog and has the rich culture to suit. It's a beautiful place full of genies, dunes, and sand-buried civilizations. I could go there. Oh, yeah. Tethir is a monarchy nestled between Anne and Kalimshan that is a war-ravaged nation that sports a dense wood called the Forest of Tethir, one of the largest settlements of elves on the entire continent. Tethir is also home to the Amlar Gems, a green gem that seemed to take very easily to magical enchantments and thus a major interest to many wizards. Mirandin once belonged to Tethir by gaining independence after a long war with Anne and Tethir. Two Syriac-worshipping ogre mages formed the armies of Mirandin and have since ruled the realm that is mostly run by tribes of monsters, with ogres being the most numerous race in the country. They, After they gained independence, a rough peace was brokered between Am and Mirandin when Lintkalis, which are center-like half-man, half-scorpion creatures, threatened both creatures and forced an alliance that is held to this day. So I'm going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> The Rock, yeah. The Rock from the movie a few years ago? Yeah, pretty much. I think it was. I'm going nowhere near Mirandin. Yeah. We'll pass. Valen is interesting as it's technically a duchy of the kingdom of Tethir, but the formation of Mirandin cut it off off by land to the rest of the kingdom. It is known as being a defender of the north from pirates and brigands for many years, making the city profoundly haunted. You'd think that make its people dour or depressing, but it's really quite the opposite. They are often so lighthearted and welcoming in Velen that other de- duchies of Tethir have called them ghost crazed. So these are people that are like happy with their hauntings. I mean, as long as friendly ghosts, I guess, if you're yeah. all Casper. You'll never lose your friends because they'll just come back as a ghost. It makes sense. Now, Earl Kazar is a small kingdom that fits in the land of intrigue pretty much only and exclusively by proximity. It is a relatively new nation formed out of swaths of untamed wilderness and mountains. There is strikingly little he, uh, to know about Earl Kazar. So it is It is basically a speed bump on the way up to Am is, is the best I could describe it as, okay? Continuing south past the lands of Intrigue and over the Shining Sea are Chult and the neighboring lands of Shar, which include countries like Samarak, Thindol, Tashalar, 
Serpentis, guess what that one's about, Halrua, Dambreth, Lurian, and the Shining Lands. And they're all mostly separated from the continent at large by the wild Charlands. Now let's break these down. Uh, let's break these down quickly here. Quickly, the jungles of Chult border these lands to the west. We know the jungles because of the Tomb of Annihilation module, which is which takes place there. Since we've covered Chult in depth in another episode, we're going to be moving on from it. But I got to mention those of you who don't know, Chult is a densely jungled home to Yuan-Ti, dinosaurs, and hidden temples to new and dead gods. You got to say dinosaurs are kind of their main draw. I don't know, man. The Yuan-Ti. You yeah, you find Yuan-Ti other places, though. Dinos are oh, like... Oh, you find Yuan-Ti everywhere. In fact, let's keep going because we will have Samarak. It's a hidden and mythical and unexplored country that is held in even more mysterious minds than Chult itself. Once a great nation of illusionists, the calamity following the spell plague pulled the nation underwater. After the spell plague was solved with a second sundering, the lands returned, still covered with confusing and obfuscating illusions, although the once great kingdom was completely decimated and destroyed. Thindal was one great serpent nation, a kingdom much like Samarak that was once ruled almost exclusively by Yuan-Ti. After a revolution led by a hero named Sithrilia, the human population took over. However, most are still tainted by that Yuan-Ti blood and have small influences to their physiology because of it. If you are playing a Yuan-T pureblood in Forgotten Realms in any of the campaign settings, you're likely going to be coming from this region, okay? Tashalar is a tropical paradise of, suburb, of superb wine, beautiful vistas, and beautiful people. It's mainly populated by wealthy merchants with a superstitious bend, as Tarokadex uh, made of gradually more expensive materials that the people of the country would often check for their own divinations. Even with that, the people of Tashalar have a strong dislike of magic. They're very spiritual, but hate magic. And that's mostly because of the costly war between wizards in its past, as well as, it, as, well as its proximity to Halrua. Halrua is a land of magic and electrum, and we'll forgive them for introducing that latter bit to our games. It is also an ancient society dating back to the ages before the fall of Nethiro. Halrua sought peace and harmony with its neighbors and friends, all the way up to the spell plague where it seemed to be destroyed only to be brought back in the second sundering. You're getting a hint of a uh, pattern here, um, which by the way, that second sundering is the event that ushered in the meta of the fifth of fifth edition from fourth. Serpentis. Now knowing the name, what do you guys think live here? I would guess tigers. God damn it, Brad. It's you on T and ah, a lot so of close. that still <laughs> run the kingdom of Serpentis to this day. Now the, kingdom used to stretch sea to shining sea in the south of Faerun before the Yuan-Ti lost its power and basically collapsed all the way down to the Black Jungle, which is the home of the throne of Seth. That's with two S's. In recent years, however, the Yuan-Ti threat has surged and pushed the borders up against Thindal to the west and Halrua to the east. Dambrath was once the boiling hot heart of the Krinti, a race of half-human, half-drow who used the nation as a surface-bound foothold for the drow of the Underdark. However, in recent years, the native population of humans here have been pushing the drow back into their holes. Lurin is a land of halflings. This place boasts a population of nearly 92% of the diminutive race. A coastal country with a fascination of adventuring, the country was nearly destroyed by the spell plague, but the resilient folks survived on islands of both natural and homemade type. 
So no bookshelf above three feet. Pretty much, yeah. Now the Shining Lands are home to the three countries of Durpar, Estegun, and Var the Golden, each hold to the belief of Adama, which is a religion much the same vein as Sikhism and Buddhism. Everything is connected in Adama, be the deity, uh, be they deity or stone or one's life. Both spiritual and physical are all for Adama. The nations here are rich with gold and beautiful weather. Now it's kind of force-like with its with its belief. And when I say Adama, I'm not talking about Battlestar Galactica or Adam. It's not a religion that worships Adam. Yeah, yeah. Finally, in this little section is Shar itself. It is a vast desert wasteland that was the epicenter of the spell plague. This is where a lot of the spell plague kicked off. When a massive rift opened into Shar and collapsed into the Underdark, any settlements within the continent spanning Shar is for trade and survival and little else. However, as with any other massive desert, rumors of hidden temples and to the goddess of Air Akadi or other wonders draw thrill seekers and adventurers alike to die in the shifting sands. So we're seeing major themes here. Obviously, spell plague and UNT are your major themes for this region. Yeah, if, if you are, if you are, if you adventure in the east past uh, the borders of Chult in the Tomb of Annihilation, this is where you're going to be, and all you're going to be dealing with are remnants of the spell plague, a bunch of wild magic, and UNT as far as the eye can see. Sounds like a fun campaign setting to me. The next section of Faerun is the southern interior north of the Shar and south of the Sea of Fallen Stars. These nations include the Sea of Falling Stars itself and its pirate islands, Termish, Suspek, Chondath, Akhanul, Chesenta, Unther, Timanthir, and Mulahorand. Well Friends, done, Dan. Well done. Bullshit fantasy names. Now, firstly, the Sea of Fallen Stars. That one's easy. It's all in English is the single largest central lake in all of Faerun. It's rife with dragons, pirates, and all types of sea folk, um, and is a large inner sea for when you want to put hard limits on your oceanic campaign. However, if you're going for more of a that story of creation level nonsense, you should know that the sea got its name for a massive meteor the gods sent to wipe out the giants and titans in the Dawn Age. Okay. Okay? Now, those, those meteors are rumored to be the first dragon eggs. So, hey, Brad, remember our campaign? That's where I got the idea from. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's sounding quite familiar. Yeah. The Pirate Isles, which are all within the Sea of Fallen Stars, are roughly six small islands that called any skullduggery, privateering, and high seas adventure home. However, after the spell plague, the waters of the Sea of Fallen Stars started to recede, which in turn... Turn the pilot Isles into Pirate Isle. Here you can find pirates, dragons, and uh, dragon pirates. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Termish is a peaceful arrowhead-shaped land protected by the Sea of Fallen Stars and two mountain ranges. It's another mercantile country that were renowned for being fair and honest. Where they really shine is their mercenary troops, however. The lands of Termish are full of roving bands of well-mannered, intelligent, and charismatic mercs who take pride in both their skills with the blade and their ability to parlay after a fight. Sounds honorable. Yeah. Suspek is another one of those small, lesser-known countries that has a slithery lizard issue, but this one's namely Naga. The Naga Flow River fills the Naga water, which the fiercely territorial Naga 
guard. There's a very specific theme if you want to go to suspect. Okay. Why didn't they just call it Negaland at right? this point? You've already got the probably, Naga Flow River. Probably because if and you the say Naga that water. too quickly, we start getting into issues, Brad. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say. Yeah. Uh, okay. Just, My mind didn't go there. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Chon Death is a... what? We're just going to move on from that. <laughs> Chon Death was once a large force of control over the entire region south of the Sea of Fallen Stars. And like everything else, the spell plague devastated the land, leaving most of it a ruined wasteland or in control by the Janassi of Akhenul. One feature of the land is the Chondolwood, which is a locus of the Feywild's magic in the material plane. Satyrs, elves, centaurs, corids, everything you could think of that is Fey, call that grand untamed wood home. Now, as I just mentioned, Akhenul is a country and geography that didn't really exist on Toral pre-Spell Plague. You see the Spell Plague really messed up the landscape in Akhenul, and its Janassi population were transported onto Toral during the cataclysmic ruining of magic. It's primarily temperate in climate, but you'd have to overlook the rolling storms of wild magic if you want to move there. No thanks. Chisenta and its Chisentens are wild and passionate people who demand the fullness of life, but don't get it twisted. While that does mean they party hard, they're also among the leading philosophers, astronomers, poets, and historians in all of Toral. There's a dark side here, though. They are fairly warlike, which I guess goes with the passion mentioned earlier, and have a massive distrust of arcane stemming from the slavery of elves. Fortunately, after the Second Sundering, much of Chisenta has fallen to bickering city-states. So them going out and just enslaving all elves isn't so big a problem anymore. Sounds like a 40k kind of Eldar group as well. Kind of, right? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Now, moving on to Unther, it is, again, one of these once great nations. However, the Spell Plague moved a large portion of the neighboring world, uh, moved a large portion of Unther into the neighboring world of Abir for some time, replacing the large swath of land with the dragonborn nation of Tymanthir. Now, this is especially fun because Unther is a nation ruled by a god emperor named Gilgim, who especially hates dragons even before the Spell Plague. Now, he claims that his main nemesis in life is none other than Tiamat herself. In the times after the Spell Plague and the return of many of Unthar's population, a massive war over the land that was once there has broken out with Tymanthir, which, like I mentioned, is a militaristic dragonborn empire. Tymanthir appeared into Toral during the Spell Plague when its capital city, uh, Tymanchabar, was physically dropped in the middle of the Unther landscape. That's just unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You wake up one day and suddenly a castle full of dragonborn appears on your doorstep. Oops. In a nation that hates dragons. In a nation that specifically hates dragons. Yeah. How many foundation issues you're going to (laughs) have? You're not wrong. Now, I really didn't want to go too far into, I did want to go too far into this next one because a lot of the interesting lore in the Forgotten Realms stems from this place. But uh, when it comes to 5e, there's really not a whole hell of a lot we have about Mulhorand or High Imaskar. The former Egypt analog in Faerun, Mulhorand was a kingdom of hot sun, rolling dune sands, and gods made emperors. Mulhorand spent some time destroyed after the spell plague, and the kingdom of High Imaskar took over. 
However, in recent years, with the second sundering, the Mulhoran pantheon has risen up in a rebellion against the oppressed Imaskari and mostly reclaimed their land. Aided by the destruction of High Imaskar, the city and keep itself during the Second Sundering. Outside of the typical desert landscape, most of Mulhorn was shifted by the spell plague and again by the Second Sundering and the resulting wars between mages and gods. Monstrosity should factor well into any fights you do in these areas, as both ambitious mages, mages and capricious gods have been known to create the bonkerest things. And yes, bonkerous is a word, coining it. Okay, we're in the home stretch, guys. Knowing the south, let's head back up to the northwest uh, to one of the more storied areas in all of Faerun, and this is the Dale Lands, Cormir, Sembia, Cormanthir, and the Anarok. We'll start with the Dale Lands, and they are what happens when you take the concept of ten towns from Icewind Dale and blow it up into a country-sized thing. The Dale Lands are an amalgam of many small dales, which are so individually vastly varied in theme that to cover that in depth would be another full episode of the podcast in and of itself. The Dales are held together and independent by an occasional banding together of their forces against oppressive threats like, say, the Zentarum. The Dales are a breeding ground of legends, with the one and only Elminster being born in one of the Dales. This is Shadowdale. He was born there. Now, we've got to talk about it. It's time for Cormir, which is the land of the Purple Dragon. And yes, the one and the same that leased its name to the worst subclass in D&D 5e. Cormir is a human kingdom central to the larger drama in all of Faerun. Its standing army, the Purple Dragons, are a fierce military presence, the subclass be damned, and adventuring is next to illegal without a proper license. Often called the Forest Kingdom, Cormir is full of vast woodlands that house ancient elf and other older ruins. As a point of interest, the purple dragon did actually exist. He was a black dragon named, fuck, dragon names, y'all, Foglormorgorus. Nailed it. Foglormorgus. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> One more shot. Or, or Foglor for short, who was so old, was so ancient a black dragon that his black scales took on a purple hue. So there is no like separate purple dragon it's a black dragon that's just really old now i guess because of this they didn't just want to call the order the order of the geriatric black dragon knight i prefer it i mean the class plays like it so hey why the fuck not <laughs> next is sembia which is one of the places where the netheries really had a stranglehold in what used to be a vassal state of the majoc of the majocracy sembia is an economical powerhouse in favor now while being relatively adverse to more warlike tendencies of its neighbors. Cormanthir is one of the biggest elven strongholds in all of Faerun. It's home to the legendary mythos, powerful artifacts that allow for the, myth the manipulation of the weave directly. This presence of magic has caused outright war with the remnants of the Netheries, including their famed plane-hopping city, Thultanthar. Adventuring here would have a lot of forests, a lot of elves, and a lot of old, old, old magic. Finally, the Anorak is a vast magical desert bordering on the Sword Coast um, from most of the rest of Faerun. The devastated wasteland was home to the heart of the Netherese Empire, and it is theorized that the fall of the Great Empire resulted in the scarring of the land to create the Great Sand Sea, that is the Anorak. The sands are rapidly expanding, however, threatening in a few short decades to swallow up all of Faerun if not stopped. Cool. Okay. I hate sand. Gets in everything. God, I hate you both. 
Finally, let's wrap up with some of the most storied areas in the far east of Faerun. This is where I have personally been waiting to cover for a while, even though if it's just a survey, and I desperately wish we can know what's going on right now in the Great Dale, Thay, Damara, Vasa, Impilter, Vesperin, Aglarond, Thesk, Reshaman, and Merkholm. Lots of country names. We'll get to them individually now. The Great Dale itself is home to the one and only Elminster. Primarily populated by human druids, the wilds of the Great Dale are largely untamed. This is perfect for renowned archmages and cults alike to evil demons or remnants of malevolent empires of bygone eras to establish footholds in Faerun. Thay. My god, Thay. Okay, now this is going to be a second because the Red Wizards of Thay have been a major lore interest of mine almost as long as I've played D&D, which is getting close to 28 years. Hell, I've even played a Red Wizard of Thay when they were a prestige class in third edition. Thay is a evil, note the quotations, majocracy ruled by the eight Zulkirs. You'll note there are eight, one for every single school of magic. It also should be noted that the legendary necromancer Zaz Tam is the Zulkir of necromancy and, oh yeah, a massive lich that fuels the undead machine of the entire nation. No big deal. He is often believed to be the real power in Thay because the whole economy, culture, philosophy, geography leads itself into Zaztam's obsession with magic and the mastery of it. This has led to a hierarchy based purely on magical prowess and rampant human rights violations. It enslaves any and every creature to fuel the Zulkirs and the Red Wizards' pursuits. They have one of the strongest militaries in Faerun, full of slaves, giants, hordes of undeads, tamed gnolls and goblinoids, and even summoned fiends in their retinue. But the thing about Fae that I love is their ambition. They've always been the bad guys. True. But that is because of their raw, untethered ambition. This has led to many conflicts like with the god kings of Mulhorand, the witches of Reshaman, and Elminster and the rest of the Dale lands. Finally, before this just becomes a Fae episode, I need to give you a peek behind the curtain, Brad, as a player in my campaign. I have a god of fire and ambition in my world. Brad, what's his name? Kasuth. That's right. Well, I remembered it. Look at me go. I got that name as a direct lift from a story of Fae's history, where, in their ambition, they summoned, they summoned an army of Ifridi and Salamanders to the realm to aid their wars. Well, the primordial Lord of Fire, who commands the Salamanders and Ifrit alike, didn't take too kindly to this, and when the wizard's expansion was done, they tried to unsummon their destructive allies. Kosuth said no and set his minions free on Thay, scarring large portions of the country's landscapes before the Red Wizards could bring it under control. Funny enough, the Thays respected this, and following a deal with Kosuth to wipe out the remaining Salamanders, they... Uh, the worship of the fire god caught, like, well, fire. Wait, salamanders? We spoke about 40k not long ago. Here it is uh, again. It's similar, but not the same. Not tiny lizards, more like large lizards that are wreathed in flame. We're talking about the salamanders who use flame weapons in 40k. Y- yes. <laughs> yes. Which one came first? Who stole whose idea? These ones. Yeah, These okay. ones. Moving on is Damara, which, opposed to Fey, is a frigid cold land basically it's the other side of the icewind dale on the back end of the great glacier it is however characterized by massive mountains a corrupt monarchy 
werewolves, and a hidden order of assassins, orders of monks and paladins aplenty, and millions of serfs just looking to survive. So if Icewind Dale and Cormier had a baby, basically, and that baby decide to try to be Reshaman. Uh, we'll get to there in a minute. Masa no. is the main border sharer, an enemy of Damara, and is run by an evil lynch, evil lich, and his subservient warlock knights and hags. A former wizard of Fey, see they're important, and a high-ranking servant of Orcus, Zhengi the wizard, uh, sorry, the witch king, kept wanting to expand out of his inhospitable tundra home and keeps trying to take over nearby Damara to, in, uh, to expand his influence to the heights that he once held. This place is Icewind Dale, just with worse weather, and if Skeletor was running the joint. Now, Impiltor is a coastal nation of feuding feudals, which is fun to say, oh, yeah. along the northeast side of the Sea of, Easter, uh, the sea of Fallen Stars. It is the rumored home and entry point to into Faerun for the Eladrin, as well as a country overrun by undead due to decades of isolation after the spell plague. Oh, good. We're in the, we're in the final five here, guys. Vespirin is named after the prominent Vespin River that runs through the land. A wide savanna-like country being part of the vast, it was once home to roaming tribes of orcs, and vast wild woodlands, but the orcs cut all of them down, leaving the main trade of the land being gold and other precious metals. If you're looking for a party in the windswept land, sorry, in the windswept grasslands, here's your place. Aglarond is home of the Yoyerwood, a vast fey-infused forest teeming with the bizarreties of the Feywild, and that means magic. Fitting, since Aglarond is also the former home of Symbol, the witch queen of Aglarond, one of the seven sisters who are the chosen of the magic god Mistra, and one of Toril's most potent spellcasters. Or at least she was until she sacrificed her, her life to save Elminster. The unfettered magic in Aglarond had also frequently drawn the attentions of Thay, leaving much of the landscape not covered in vast Feywood, a magical scarred wasteland. Thesk is one of those lands that sits between Karatur and Faerun. Karatur is another continent. A rocky wasteland left scarred in the fall of Narfel, the many wars of Thay, and the Great Dale. Thesk is an oligarchy where the rich rule, but only their little towns. Everywhere outside of Thesk is a wild land teeming with orcs and goblins. If you want to have a like straight up traditional D&D low magic kind campaign um, with bizarre magic things that no one really understands, Thesk is your, Thesk is your place. Next, as I mentioned earlier, Reshemin is an area of wonder, witches, and time waylaid. Basically, a nation built by old witches and hags on the ruins of the Netheries and Narfel empires, battling for supremacy with the Wizards of Thay. There's actually a campaign setting set in Reshemin for sale in DM's Guild that is partially co-authored by none other than Ed of the Greenwood, so you know it's got to be good and impactful. Here's a quote from the breakdown of the book. I've, I've taken this directly because I love this. Reshaman is a nation known for its fierce berserkers and the witch Lauren. Why? Uh, sorry, W-Y-C-H-L-A-R-A-N. An order of witches who govern with power and wisdom. For centuries, they have defended against incursions by the Red Wizards of Fae. The land's high broken ruins of the fallen empires of Narfel and the Romanthar who destroyed themselves in a conflagration of fiendish and arcane sorcery. This place is metal as fuck, and I love it. <laughs> Finally, Mergholm is if you wanted the Rohirrim of Lord of the Rings, 
but also wanted to see what a group of unmasked dragons called the Council of Worms or Dragon Princes ruled the country. Mergholm is the is also the ancestral home to one of my favorite big bad evil guys in D&D lore and members of the Dead Three, Mirkel. And that's all, for the most part, of the political powers and boundaries of Faerun. Now, I understand this was really quick for a lot of these areas like Fae, Cormanther, Akinol, Kalanchan, and the rest. But the truth of the matter is we don't really know for sure the minutia of the day-to-day in a lot of these realms post the Second Sundering. 5e simply hasn't given us that information yet. There is rich, rich lore and history all across Ed's realms, but before we see what's kicking in the rest of the world, where we have even less info, I want to ask you guys, and this is with an initiative role, which area of Faerun do you want to go adventuring as a player in? All right. I got a 15. 16. 18. Go ahead, James. James, in all of this, which area do you want to adventure in as a player? The Sandy Desert one. That was... A lot of them. <laughs> uh, Mulhorand. Mulhorand. Yeah. Mulhorand. I would like to go there as a player. I think it would be really interesting. Um, uh, why? Um, just the whole, the way it was described out, the desert setting, the war that happened there, how things shifted because of the spell plague. It seems like a really interesting area to have things out in the desert for your party uh, as a party member to find. Ancient yeah. temples, ancient ruins ancient societies such as the Yanti who went to ground to hide. Yep. I think that'd be a really good location just to have a wide campaign setting that you'll be able to hit all aspects. Cool. Brad? Uh, not just because it's the last one you said, but Mergom sounded really interesting. Between the Council of Worms, like Dragon Prince's ruling, will make for some really interesting power struggles. Mm-hmm. But also the Rohirrim uh, in Lord of the Rings has always been really fascinating to me. So to play in a campaign with some of that setting yeah, is cool. like that would really be as a player. That'd be a lot of fun. I don't think I'd be able to DM it, but cool. playing it, it would be fun for me as a player. I want to go to Reshaman. Uh, This is the, that witch uh, yeah. place that battles with well. Thay. I'll get my Thay. And personally, I love the, I love occult lore and um, stuff like that. And Reshaman is really where I'm going to be able to see a lot of that kind of stuff. Like that creepy border horror line campaign, which I love as a player. So mm-hmm. uh, how about we'll go with the same initiative order. Uh, good. James, as a DM, where do you want to run? I want to run in Kondath. And session one, the party will be traveling from point A to point B. They'll meet an old man also traveling, and he will ask them for their names. And they will, as all parties do, let them know their names. Well, he was a fae, and now he owns your name. You just gave it to him. There's the campaign. Go get your names back. I love it. That's amazing. Brad? That's fantastic. Uh, For me, it's Samarok. The concept of playing with illusionists and everything in that region, I would go, especially post-Second Sundry, like post-Spell Plague, just I would have everything. You can't trust anything your eyes see, anything your ears hear within Samarok. I would really amp that up to the next level. Yeah. For me, it's either Halrua or, Th- or I mean, Thay. I want to see more shit with Thay. I love Thay. Um, the Thay and the Red Wizards make such a great bad guy to a campaign, especially since slavery is such a big thing in Thay. You can have a party. Session one, you guys break away from your slave uh, um master in some way shape or form and you are building yourself up into a massive rebellion against you know 
CR 28 level wizards, right? So but I absolutely love the idea of Faye. So if I'm playing anywhere, I'm playing in Faye. Cool. Hey, everyone. This is the moral center of the podcast, Dan. Now, I know we mention our donate button in every episode, and I know we talk about our fledgling little store that we slapped together in a drunken stupor. I know that times are tough for a lot of people, and I know that it's in relatively poor taste to ask for financial contributions. So I'm not going to do that. I mean, it's not like we have a Patreon and we don't do Kickstarter or GoFundMe campaigns. We haven't even been paid monetarily for any commercial spots we put together for other products in well over a year. So yeah, all the equipment, web hosting, books, and reference material comes out of our own pockets. Each episode takes about seven hours to produce, and Adam and I both have suffered through sleepless nights, screaming matches, and ever-graying beards and balding heads in order to provide this free podcast to whomsoever might benefit from it. And we haven't missed a week yet. I mean, sure, some projects are on unforeseen hiatuses, and we had to resort to Zoom calls during the pandemic, but we never missed a regular episode of the podcast. So while Adam and Terry and others would gladly soul whatever minuscule scraps of their souls they have left to beg for donations, I have what is called integrity, honor. I don't want you to go to our website at www.itsamimic.com to find a fancy little donate button, or click through the Labyrinthine store that you could find there to purchase its Mimic brand items. Instead, I just want you to know that I love each and every one of you, and that we're currently debating auctioning off Brad's Friday night services to the highest bidder. So let's get back to this expensive and stressful episode and try to ignore the rumbling in our stomachs. Next, we're going to cover Toril as a whole and the continents on it. And before we dive in, let's take a minute and appreciate something about the design of the planet as a whole. If you are an aspiring home brewer or a new DM trying to figure out calendars in a bullshit fantasy setting, then you'll want to take note of some of the design touches good old Toril has at large. Oh, and if you're wondering still what Toril even is, remember if the Sword Coast is the Pacific Northwest region of North America and Faerun is North America, then Toril is Earth, the world at large. Now, like Earth, Toril is the third rock from the sun. It has 365 day long years. Each day is 24 hours long, and if your character hails from there, which chances are they do, then you are generally known as a Torillian with one L. Don't forget, it also has French Stewart. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Toril, like Earth, only has one moon, but that moon does have an interesting asterisk to it. That moon's name is Selun, like the god, and it is a straight analog to our moon as the moon. It orbits in such a way that it only shows one face, and that face appears as a barren rocky surface, much like our moon. This is, however, an illusion that serves to hide the Spelljammer docks and the splendor of Saloon, or as the inhabitants call it, Lyra. And we'll talk about all of that when Spelljammer eventually comes out. Suffice it to say, you can travel and trade with the aloof and paranoid inhabitants of the moon, but you'd probably have to get there first, and I hope you have that wish spell handy, because that's really one of the only ways you're going to be able to get there. Now, Saloon is followed by the Tears of Saloon, which is a cluster of small asteroids, which number in the hundreds, that orbit Toril at about the same rate as Saloon, giving the moon a sparkling, glittery trail of lights behind it, making it look like moonlit tears in an anime intro. We've all seen it. We all know what I'm talking about. 
Finally, one of the newer revelations in D&D was the existence of a beer, a twin planet that also existed on the material plane with Toril, but was hidden in a pocket dimension that made it all but invisible to the people of Toril. The planet was cut off from the gods and the weave, and it was ruled by ancient primordials and dragon lords that, removed from, that were removed from Toril during the Dawn War. This made the planet harsh and barren, until the spell plague made it visible and forced the twin planets to even swap, sorry, to even swap some countries. Now, the next lore episode, uh, we will be going a little bit more in depth into the history of Toro, um, including details into the many ages and worldwide effects, i.e. the spell plague. But briefly, here we go. Many thousands, many tens of thousands of years ago, Ao, overlord of all the gods, sundered the planets of Toro and Abir after the event called the Tearfall, nearing the end of the Age of Thunder, where the giants and the dragons fought. After that, the elves started to appear in the Age of Flowering that lasted nearly 12,000 years. This age ended when the elves created the Isle of Evermeet and sundered the rest of Toril, causing the current geography to begin its formation. After the first flowering came the Founding Time, which is during the lull of aggression between giants, dragons, and then elves, gave the humanoid races time to grow roots and become established. This then led to the Age of Humanity, which saw elves and dwarves decline heavenly and sorry, decline heavily, and humanity expand be, uh, around the world. This is when the Netheries and the Narfel were really big players. Finally, the present age, and this is actually anything that's happened during the existence of Dungeons and Dragons. In a time period of roughly so far 500 years, this included periods like the Time of Troubles the Spell Plague, and the Second Sundering. Basically, all of the stuff that happened in the present age is stuff that is included in, like, even D&D First Edition lore, right? Everything beyond that was all old stuff. Now, knowing the history, briefly, let's look at the rest of the planet outside of North America, I mean, Faerun. There are many other continents on uh, Toral service, and so far, we've seen very little of them in 5e. Let's start with the big guy, Karatur. Kerator is the continent bordering Faerun on the east side, Sorda. A massive stretch of land called the Horde Lands separates the two, and you can guess what the Horde Lands is about. Kerator is an Asian analog in Dungeons and & Dragons, and with that carries a lot of that flavor. Wizards are more elemental Wujins, who function as primary imperial court wizards. As for countries, you have the imperial Chinese-esque Shaolung, the Plain of Horses, think Mongolia, Island kingdoms that have a very Polynesian feel to them, uh, Kozakura and Wa, which are very Japanese, while Koryo and its Koryoan people are clearly Korean. Basically, if you want to have a feudal Japan or uh, Asian style game of D&D, Karatour is your jam. Somebody give Megan a call. <laughs> next is Zakara, and it is your next biggest and has a very Middle Eastern Mediterranean feel. Arid with large swaths of desert, lush oases, and powerful genies, Zakara is ruled over by the Grand Caliph from the City of Delights. The people are intelligent and proud, and if you want to have an Arabian slash 1001 Nights level campaign, this is your place. Maztica is a chult, but it's bigger, wilder, and more mysterious. It carries with it a very Central American slash South American feel. A large continent with several different biomes to play in, from vast jungles to sprawling arid wastelands. One of the greatest parts, of my opinion, uh, of Mazika is that during the Spell Plague, this native home to the Tabaxi was wild magic away to a beer for a time, 
until the second sundering, which made a lot of the tabaxi nope the fuck out of town to the closest place over the sea, the Sword Coast. Ankarome is a continent north of Maztica and a wild, unexplored, mostly frigid wasteland of which not much has ever really been discovered. The continent itself gives off a lot of colonial North American feel with vast untamed land full of ancient cultures and ancient monsters. Further west than Evermeet, a lot of wild elves still have a heavy presence here, as well as a detachment of the Flaming Fist. One important note. If you listen to the Baldur's Gate episode, you will know that the namesake of the city you gallivant around in before descending into Avernus was a great adventurer. Well, his final adventure led him to Ankarome, where he disappeared and was never heard from again. Hence the presence of the Flaming Fist. Hence the presence of the Flaming Fist, exactly. In, by the way, uh, Fort Flame, I believe is what it's called, and it's in the Bay of Balduron. Oh, okay. They so really like, reached. It, yeah. It's, it's if a you're going to Ankarome, be Balder is probably part yeah, of your Don't day. expect too much of them. <laughs> it's the Flaming Fist. Yeah. <laughs> Katashaka is the African analog in the grand scheme of Toro. It is a tribal continent that was the original home to many of the cultures in southern Faerun. Katashaka is often seen as the birthplace of humanity. Now, during the days of thunder, humans existed in small pockets on Katashaka, but were simple and primitive. Also prevalent on Katashaka were tribes of Tabaxi that worshipped a separate pantheon of gods, of which the mighty Tarask was a member. Ooh, delightful. Fun times. Love this place. Next is Larakond. And it's very interesting. When Maztica was sent to Abir, Larakond was sent to Toral, although in slightly different locations. Difference, however, is that when Maztica came back during the Second Sundering, Larakond and its elemental worshipping dragon-filled land stayed. The silver-skied land of Larakond, they have this uh, magical dome kind of over it that colors the sky different. It's cool. Um, it is a high magic continent full of intrigue and otherworldliness of its own. But whether you see want to see the golem works of Gontal, uh, the remains of a slumbering titan from the Dawn Age in Thimbril, or want to brave the evil dragon country of Skelkor, Laircrond has a lot to offer. Personally, I want to go to, there to harvest a weird amber that is known to weaken dragons like kryptonite that has popped up around the continent and has become hunted by the dragon empress Guarvindal because of this. I mean, that shit just sounds awful. Or that shit just sounds useful. Now, Os is the last and least known continent of Tora. It's like Ankarome is a wild unexplored land that resembles pre-colonial North America, Australia, or even some pre-Roman Celtic feel. Full of druids and heavy spirituality, the people there revered, uh, the people... Sorry, the people there revere ancestors instead of gods and use their guidance to tap into the spirit world, creating what is known in Faerun as spirit shamans. These spirit shamans would then go on walkabouts led by their visions um, of their ancestors all around all of Toril, even into Faerun, Caratur, and the Isle of Evermeet, which I do want to mention real quick because I'm certain I'll be crucified if we don't give it a gander. I want to mention the Isle of Evermeet now. Created by elves long ago, Evermeet isn't a continent and is often closely tied in with the Sword Coast, but is its own nation. Only elves and currently even only non-drow elves are allowed on Evermeet. Evermeet is the final resting place of elves who commune with the Seldarin, uh, elf gods, in a vast fae slash magical lush heavily forested land. The island is shrouded by illusion and every Telquisar elf 
which are the high elves, wood elves, sun elves, moon elves, everything but drow, um, must find their way into the land when they are nearing the end of their days. It is a land of mystery and incredibly powerful magic. And if you want to talk to one of the elf gods or find an ancient elven artifact of great importance, here is where you'll need to go. By the way, I do want to mention it's guarded by a navy of six heavily armed legitimate spaceships. So yeah, only go there if you need to and if you have pointy ears. So guys, let's grab some dice here. And let's roll. I got some questions for us. I got a 17. I also got a 17. Matt one. Fuck off, Brad. Roll again. Eight. I got a six. You get to hey, go first. Hey, I get to go first. All right, what's your so, question? Brad, which continent intrigues you the most as a player? As a player, I would say the most interesting to me is probably going to be Mastica. Okay. Um, I really like the idea of exploring deep in the jungles. Gives you a little bit of that Indiana Jones vibe. Very much so, yeah. It's got, might, it's got like that Incan in Central America. Yeah, I might have a chance to hunt down some tabaxi, which always makes me feel good. <laughs> I don't know. They'll outrun you. Yeah, range. Long yeah. range spells. But yeah, uh, Mastica is the one that uh, absolutely stood out to me, especially because you can play with a lot of the mystery of it disappearing and reappearing. Yep. As a player, care to work. Like, I would love to play a samurai campaign. I would love to play that feudal Japan level campaign. I just don't want to run it because I will I will get things wrong. So um, if I'm playing, I want to play in Karator. I would love to have that honor and shame driven culture, high politic and role play game. Cool. James? Well, because you said Kator, I will do the Isle of Evermet. I think it'd be really cool to play as a character that was part of not necessarily part of a crew that delivers elves to this island, but a son of an elf and this crew. So you have connection to this place as one of your parents is there or now dead there or however that works. So, but you're only half elf. So you're still an outsider. Yeah. You'd, you'd be, be cool. like allowed on the beach. Like they wouldn't sink your ship with you there. Yeah. But you're, you're not, you're not getting into the Evermeet for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. about as a DM guys? Brad, as a DM, I'm this is where I'm actually going to go with Evermeet because okay. I want to I know it's a trope, but I'm going to play with the trope of you wake up on an island unsure how you got there as a party. I'm going to have a rule that none of you are allowed, eh, maybe one player is allowed to play an elf, but try to avoid elves would be my recommendation. Okay. Because I want the elves to figure out how the hell did you get here because you're not allowed here. And eventually you're so you're going to have some political intrigue, you're going to have some potential combat there's going to be a reason why you're there. And most importantly, as the campaign moves on, I'm hoping by the time I get to it, Spelljammer will be released and I will be able to play part of the Spelljammer campaign and kick it off from there. You really want to play a sci-fi campaign, eh? I want to play a sci-fi fantasy campaign. I don't, I can play Star Wars if I want to play Star Wars. There's, I can play, you know, what the Space Finder, not Space Finder, Starfinder. Yeah. If I want to, it exists. I want a fantasy version of sci-fi. Real quick note before I answer my question next. Uh, both of you, sci-fi or fantasy, which which one are you saddling up with? You uh, had to choose. If I only get one for the rest of my life, I'm going fantasy. James? Oh, fucking hard. Oh, it's not easy, but fantasy. Um, I know if I had to choose only one for the rest of my life. Only one. I'd probably do fantasy too. Really? Fantasy is a lot broader than sci-fi. Ah, Things in space are still fantasy. Yeah, yeah, well, they, the, the thing is with sci-fi and fantasy is I 
I, I have never seen them as mutually exclusive. Like, no, I had not. a friend who said, well, fantasy's the past and sci-fi's the future. And why would uh, you want to worry about the past? Yeah. I disagree completely. Um, technology is magic and magic is technology mm-hmm. through different lens. Star so, Wars specifically is a long time ago in a land far away. Well, Star Wars is a fantasy. Yep. Is a, is straight up a fantasy story told in space. Yeah. Um, and like you look at things like Firefly, which is a Western just told in mm-hmm. space, right? It's kind of the same level of stuff. Um, if I am to be completely honest, if I'm to choose, I would choose fantasy as well. I mean, I've run a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. It makes sense why. But uh, fantasy's always been my jam, especially medieval art and media. I'm getting a tattoo that is just full medieval art up my uh, up my arm now. So like I, I love that level of stuff. But the logic of sci-fi always draws me in. So I want to apply those principles to my D&D campaigns typically. Yeah, I, I don't want to make the choice between the two because I love them both. But if I had to, fantasy. Yeah. James, you were telling me once about a, you spent like a three month period inside of one of your D&D campaigns, just collecting the like chemical ingredients to like a bomb. Yeah. And uh, like completely subtly, uh, with, like under the radar from everybody. Yeah. And then when it came to the big boss, you're just like, give me a round, put this all together, yep. throw it out. And this is a legitimate bomb. There you go. Like, mm-hmm. um, like that level of stuff. Know. I love letting my players get away with stuff that if they give me a good enough reason, I'm on board with it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm right? just taking notes. Yeah, thanks, Brad. <laughs> My DM tried to complain about the Geneva Convention with that one. And I told her we were in a different world. Rough. <laughs> Mustard gas doesn't exist in Faerun. Come on. Yikes. It didn't until now. Gas exists in Faerun. <laughs> well, for me, if I'm running a DM, uh, if I'm running a homebrew campaign in one of the other continents on Toral outside of Faerun, I'm going to Anchorome. This is the uh, like rugged north american uh analog the colonial north american analog i love the idea of like hunting down the remnants and the legend of what actually happened to baldurin that sounds like a great idea to me mm-hmm. absolutely and being someone who not only is the son of an anthropologist but also canadian um i know a lot about canadian history and 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 the how the pioneers and explorers way back actually functioned in the wilds of Canada. So like applying that knowledge would be great in a D&D game. Cool. James, what about you? Where are you DMing? Uh, for me, probably O's. Yeah. I would do it that um, the whole party is actually a reincarnation of the spell, um, the spell plague. So they all died during that and they've now been brought back years after the brought back happened. That's metal as fuck. I Very love it. cool. Yeah. That's so cool. Totally dig that. All, all right. Well, here guys, same initiative order. Clearly you just gave us a campaign idea there, James, but let's pitch a one shot in uh, somewhere in these realms. Brad, give me a one shot or a campaign, whatever you want. Um, for somewhere outside of fame. Perfect. Um, in that case, I am going to go with Jakara, and I am going to very much go along the lines of a genie comes to the party with basically he needs them to recover a magical artifact. But what they don't realize is that the magical artifact that they are going to be recovering will be their own imprisonment for all of time. 
Oh, okay. Um, and I think there's going to be hints as you go that, hey, recovering this, if you bring it back to the genie, he's going to use it to entrap you. And then the party has to figure out how to flip the cards and entrap the genie within this magical artifact. Cool. For me, my my one shot or my uh, even a campaign, because I'll get carried away with this, is actually going to be in um, Laracond, which is this uh, dragon-ruled vestige of a beer that is now in Toro. Um, mostly because of this little amber thing that like weakens dragons. I would love to have your party fueled by that. And now not only are you guys professional dragon hunters in a dragon ruled land, you are there being hunted as well by dragon cults. So I want to have a dragon focused campaign where you are gifted this ability from these gems that popped up. And the reason why they popped up is to generate more power. So I give you guys this ability to grow in power based off the amount of gems you either uh, absorb or carry or something. Cool. Yeah. James? For me, I would do it in uh, Kadashka. And I would have it that you are being sent there, at least you're being told you're being sent there to prevent a war between nations. So you're going there trying to negotiate peace, bringing gifts from the land you were sent from to solve peace. And at the very end, during the final battle, you find out all those gifts were weapons and that whole continent gets glassed. Wow. Okay. Your whole party, your whole point is to save people, but you were the bad guys the whole time. You were the deliverers of war, bringers of war. You wiped out thousands, if not millions of people from your inaction. Do do you then offer a redemption arc for those characters? Because pulling the rug on your players at the end of a campaign, especially if it's a long campaign like that. We like, said one shot. Oh, I guess a one shot. Okay. It's built as a one shot and they get no redemption. Cool. Yeah, if it's one shot, fuck it. I'll that would kill somebody like me, but I also going though to figure out something's not right. So if yeah. they ask the right questions, interrogate the right people, they can figure it out early, but it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be something most players will see. So yeah. they'll get to the end of the one shot thinking they're super great and powerful and everyone dies. Cool. So if you want to catch up with us, we can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and at Reddit at R It's a Mimic. You can also email us at info at it's a mimic.com. These are where you can send your, our mailbag questions, positive reviews, sharing on social media really helps us out. And word of mouth is how we get our podcast out. If you want to share an idea for what we should play in a one shot as a group, the Reddit is your best bet. Okay, moving on next, uh, we've covered all of the world. We've covered the minutia of Faerun. It's all great. However, we've dropped his names a couple times and he was missed during the celebrities episode because we wanted to give him a bit more of a spotlight. Brad, tell me about Elminster. Sorry, who? Elminster. Never heard of him. Uh, if you just paid attention to 5e, that's probably true, unfortunately. <laughs> right. well, let's do a dive. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Uh, noticeably absent in 5th edition, Elminster, also known as Terminsel, Wanlorn, Eladar the Dark, the Old Mage, the Sage of Shadowdale, the Great Oversorcerer, Stinkbeard, Old Sage. Wait, Adam's in this? Yes, Adam is absolutely in this. Stinkbeard? <laughs> it's Adam. That's Adam's nickname. <laughs> old sage doom bringer of mistra and old weird beard is one of the most <laughs> yeah, powerful- yeah right 
he is one of the most powerful wizards in the history of the Forgotten Realms. Not the most powerful, but he's he's on the list. Yeah. He is a creation of Ed Greenwood, whose name we've also dropped, creator of the Forgotten Realms settings. Uh, Elminster is as old as D&D itself and has enough lore to fill a full episode, but we're going to do a snippet of it here because really to do a deep dive on Elminster and get everything about him would be, we would still miss things and have people angry at us. Well, okay, so... Real quick, before we really get into the history, Elminster was one of those guys that a lot of books were written about. Like he was the main character or a secondary or tertiary character. Outside a, of official material, right? Like we're in, talking, Well, like, in a sorry. lot of the old Dungeons and Dragons, first edition, advanced sure. Dungeons yep. and Dragons books, right? Third edition. He was everywhere. Yeah. Um, one interesting story uh, I have, which we'll get to the end is, do either of you know why we have Mordenkainen's Magnificent Mansion or Big B's Hand in the Forgotten Realms on Toril? Because Mordenkainen and Big B are part of Orth. They're part of Greyhawk. That's correct. But they have regular council with Elminster and Elminster brings them back. Do you know where those council happens? I do, but I'm going to let you drop that bomb because you're the one who told me. Oh, it makes me so happy. So Elminster... Mordenkainen and the head mage of Kryn, which is the Dragonlance campaign setting, which his name escapes me right now, um, meet up once every 10 or so years at Ed of the Greenwoods house outside of Toronto, Canada. Nice. And they Cano- just exchange, they exchange spells and then go on their merry way. Yeah. It, it to me was one of those, oh man, I feel super nerdy appreciating the shit out of this. <laughs> It's wonderfully delightful. Yeah. So let's dive in a bit on the history of Elminster. We're not going to be able to cover all of his adventures because, again, that's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. We're going to try and hit on some of the major ones here and really get a good idea of who he is. Yeah. So Elminster was born in the realm of Athelantar, which we discussed earlier, right? Which is... Which is within the... Which is in the Shadowdale. Yes, exactly. Right. Lots... Which is, again, within the Dales, right? So uh, Athelantar is also known as the Realm of the Stag, which is in northern Faerun, which Dan discussed. At the age of 12, his parents were killed by a Mollegrim named Undarl. Um, after the death of his parents at the hands of Undarl, Elminster took up his slain father's broken sword, which was called the Lion Sword. And he took to a life of minor crime in order to provide for himself. Theft, burglary, the same thing, I guess, but yeah. general roguishness. Um, after years of burglary he, he and adventuring, he was approached by Mistra, who will... We'll discuss a little more in the gods episode, but mother of all magic is Mistra. Uh, Elminster himself obviously had a great distrust for magic, given the fact that the death of his parents came from uh, a Mollegrim who was a basically a mage himself. Yeah, Mollegrims uh, are kind of like ogre mages, I believe. Kind of, yeah. Um, but the one that specifically killed his parents was a mage lord. So oh, kind wow. of a high, yeah. a high ranking mage. Uh, again, this is something that we don't really have terminology for in 5th edition. It's kind of outgrown its phrasing, but you can think basically a very powerful wizard. Yeah. Um, so Mistra approached Elminster and convinced him to study under her tutelage to basically become a powerful mage himself. Interestingly, when Mistra basically convinced him to join her in uh, the study of magic, she transformed him into a woman and changed uh, his name to Elmara in order for her now to serve as a priestess 
priestess of Mistra. The concept of this is that there's a thought that uh, women were more tied to the magical realm, and it was also to get a greater appreciation for the world from a different viewpoint. Well, okay, so the, in the Church of Mistra, there are something called the Seven Sisters, and the mm-hmm. Seven Sisters are all like, they're analogous to the Chosen of Mistra. They're those That's who right. have been like gifted specifically to Mistra. And in this El case, is the only is a, dude. Yes, right? but he is, he is one of the Chosen of Mistra. He is one of the Chosen of Mistra. Like he is handpicked exactly. um, by the God of Magic. And in order to exist within the church while he was learning his magic, um, it would have been really out of place if he was male. Yes. Um, now, this is sticky territory to walk, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what Mistra had to had to do, right? Yep. So, um, and as far as I'm aware, like, this is just part of Mordecai's history, right? Like, this is just one of the things he went through. Oh, Mistra's history. Yeah. Um, did I say Mordecai? You did. Whoops. Nah, close enough. <laughs> anyway, so that's going to piss off a lot of people. <laughs> anyway, eh, so leave it in. Yeah, absolutely. So as her time as Elmara, um, she served underneath the an avatar of Mistra, uh, and then eventually had to study underneath an archmage named Ander, who ended up teaching her the spell in order to transform her back into her original form as Elminster. So in her... In... Elminster's studies in the initial stages transformed into a woman until eventually they were able to learn the spell to transform themselves back to their original form. Cool. So now we're back to Elminster being Elminster, retain the name and everything. He returned to study under uh, Mirahala, which is the avatar of Mistra, until he finally had enough power to avenge the death of his parents. And he ended up killing the mage lord who killed his parents. After doing this, he claimed the throne of Athalantar, but quickly abdicated as he wasn't really interested in ruling. He wasn't the ruling type. Yeah. Um, and so he handed over to a good friend of his who he was able to trust. And he moved on to continue adventuring and basically furthering his magical powers. He ended up going to Cormanther, where he studied, uh, continued to grow his power and actually managed to survive an assassination attempt thanks to protection from Mistra. Mistra went on to test his skills and tempt him from the path of good. However, he passed her trials. During this time, he helped found the Harpers, and he is also rumored to have played a role in the founding of Waterdeep and setting up its ruling lord system. During the time of Troubles, Mistra transferred her power to Midnight, the female human wizard, and as such, Elminster lost much of his power due to the sorcerer's power being Mistra herself. During this time, Elminster had to defend the Shadowdale against his Antarum army led by Bane, the god of tyranny and oppression. Who is also part of the Dead Three. Yes. In dealing with an avatar of Bane, Elminster was struck by a spell of his own creation, causing him to be teleported to another plane for a time. Eventually, he returned a couple years later. Elminster has played a pivotal role in many of the major battles and wars in the history of Faerun. He even found himself at one point in the Nine Hells in order to close a portal and prevent an influx of devils and demons into Toril. He was held and tortured by an archdevil known as Nurgle, and he was rescued by agents of Mistra. This brings us to the present time post-spell plague. With the death of Mistra, Elminster was once again stripped of much of his power. He was still quite powerful, but every single use of magic brought him to the brink of insanity. He was reliant on Storm Silverhand, one of the chosen of Mistra, which we mentioned earlier, Dan. Yep. Um, and she was, uh, Storm Silverhand actually was a foster child to Elminster, assigned cool. to him by Mistra. Storm was the only one able to soothe his mind and keep him sane between castings and magic. The occasional cantrip he could cast, but generally anything more powerful than that would drive him to the brink of insanity. Yeah. The two of them continued to battle on, 
fighting evil everywhere they went and defending Faerun. And that brings us to present time. Yeah. Now, quick spoiler. In current D&D lore, Mistra is back. So uh, what that means for Elminster, they haven't told us. No. Like, uh, I do I do know that, like, in 5e, we have shockingly little of Elminster. Um, so we don't really know how he's handled the resurgence of Mistra um, and the, re, the reestablishing of the weave. Mm-hmm. Because with the spell plague came the destruction of the weave. Yes. which was then rebuilt during the second sundering. So like some stuff has happened um, and we don't know where the most powerful mage in the world is right now. And we are what, six years into fifth edition. Yeah. Like, Did they just forget? <laughs> like I, it's, it's such a glaring omission that it makes me feel yeah. like they have a plan. They just haven't met it yet. Yeah. And then COVID threw like the biggest wrench into all of their plans. So yeah. I hope we see something about him soon um, because Mr's back. So he should mm-hmm. be fully powered. He, and he sane, should be. Yeah. Right? He should have his sanity returned. Hopefully. Yeah. So guys, there's a lot of theories as to why Elminster has been left out. Let's grab our dice and let's roll. And I want to know why you think Elminster has been left out of D&D 5e lore up until this point. All right. I got a 10. 11. All right. Brad. All right. Um, I think you're kind of on the right point where we were talking earlier, Dan, is I think they just haven't totally figured out how they want to do it. Um, fifth edition is kind of in a vision of reimagining right now. It's re look, it's completely reevaluating the way that we look at the world of it. And so I think they want to make sure they do right by Elminster. Mm-hmm. And I think they just haven't figured out how to do that right yet. Well, I, I look at things like the reestablishing of the deal with, uh, Weiss and Hickman about Dragonlance. Um, the fact that we had a global pandemic that definitely affected Wizards of the Coast a little bit more than your typical company because they're a publishing company built around a game that has people coming together. Like, it's got to be hard. Um, and on top of that, they've had a bunch of um, social justice movements that have uh, pulled them in the correct direction to fix a lot of like the subtle racism and uh bigotry Glaring that was in a few other cases yeah yeah less subtle in a few other cases exactly um that is in dnd so i think i think they had a plan for elminster and i think they still do but because of covid and uh uh enduring a trump presidency and all that other stuff things got pushed and we will see when D&D kind of gets back on a path, we will see Elminster become a major player in what I hope is the next Forgotten Realms campaign setting. I think Elminster will play a big role in that because he has been a glaring omission for too long. For me, I honestly think they'll you'll be the first book in 6th edition because I think 6th edition is coming real quick here. Oh, really? Okay. But my answer I would rather give, he's still with Nurgle the Plague Lord. I'm assuming I'm choosing to accept both Nurgles are the same. <laughs> For the Nurgle from uh, 40k, 40k is the one nice. that captured him. He was in the chaos. <laughs> just, just giving him hyper gonorrhea. Yeah. Oh. Gross. Okay. Well, uh, James, that that aside, let's let's talk about how you would use Elminster in your home game. Um, Brad, how would you use 
Um, or how would you bring Elminster into your homebrew game? I would have Elminster. I really want to pull on these Harper threads. Okay. Given the fact that he is a founding member of the Harpers, he's kind of a big deal pulling a lot of the strings behind the scenes. I would have him be almost an invisible force. You would bump into him in hallways and you wouldn't know who you bumped into. Okay, cool. I would basically drop hints that, you know, there's a smell as you walk by. We got old stink beard, right? Yeah. So play pull a little bit on that wild beard notice that he always has a pipe that's always smoking little things like that i forgot to mention his ever smoking pipe it's kind of uh, iconic for him it's yeah absolutely iconic it's as iconic for him as mordekainen's bald ass head yeah absolutely or dan's bald ass uh, sorry hey, mordekainen's hey. bald ass head hey hey hey, hey. i'll take it <laughs> anyway but yeah i would kind of do something like that i wouldn't actually pull him in we'll get into some of the dangers of that but i wouldn't want him to be too active of a player but i'd like to have him behind the scenes pulling a lot of strings i want to embrace his madness we've seen some of that madness already in mordenkainen in spoilers uh curse of strahd um i would love to see how what someone who once had 30 character levels to him like i once saw a stat up of Elminster and it was like he's a level 20th wizard level uh eight cleric and level two fighter like he's just insane uh for his class levels but uh, I would love to see someone like him with like that raw power be brought low um due to a straight up disconnection to what makes him who he is right um me if I'm using Elminster Elminster is a quest giver right? Your party has sought Elminster's advice on something. No one, no one better to go to than Elminster. And when you finally meet him, um, he's like sitting outside of a bakery um, with his ever smoking pipe um, in rags, eating, eating some baked good that he just bought from the bakery. And your party um, has trouble getting his attention. Like he just seems like he is mentally on another plane of existence. And I think that's what he's going to be going through, right? And your party has to figure out a way to get him lucid enough to get the information you need. I would have it then also play on, you need to find Storm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or yeah. or any of the Seven Sisters and get their help. Yeah. I mean, some of well, them you're not because one of them's the Queen of the Evermeet. I was, based on the lore, Storm was actually the only one who was actually able to. None of the other sisters could. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, just uh, for fun, because you mentioned it. Based on 3.5, he had a challenge rating of 39. 24 levels of wizard, five of archmage, three of cleric, two of rogue, one of fighter. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. So there it is. You. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, James, what are you uh, like? If you, where are you using Elminster in your campaign? I'm using him to save a party. So when a party, get, you put him up against a fight that they will not be able to win against someone who they assume is the big bad evil guy and have him stumble into wherever they are and a flick of his wrist wipe that person out of the face of existence saying i am this powerful and now he becomes the antagonist not the big bad evil guy he's not evil per se but he's doing something against the party that they need to convince him otherwise yeah like you built up this big bad evil guy um elminster kind of blows him up turns him to dust and it's not that he's the bad guy but now you have to deal with the repercussions yeah. this was a bad guy that you wanted to bring in to answer for his crimes you needed to bring him in alive and elminster just you know snaps him out of existence yeah, yeah cool um what are the dangers guys we've, we've mentioned this a couple of times what are the dangers of having that elminster gandalf mordenkainen level nigh level wizard 
just gallivanting around in your stories. How do you handle that as a DM, Brad? Um, so yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you basically have a Deus Ex Machina built in, right, at this point, which is good and bad because your players can grow to rely on it if they know it's there. It can also feel a little cheap if it steps in as the party is about to be wiped out. Um, so really finding the right way to introduce them. Um, that said, as a DM, the best way I find to handle it is having a character like the completely disinterested and justifiably so disinterested in any of the concerns of the party because the concerns of a party are going to be so far below a character like Alminster that unless their paths cross and they happen to have a similar issue that they're dealing with it'll be for completely different reasons right why Alminster's going to care about the big bad evil guy is probably going to be a much different reason than why the party cares but their paths may overlap but making sure that you know, you're not just going to have him roll in, overpower everything the party does and basically make the party useless. Because if he shows up into combat, the party doesn't need to be there. Yeah, you run into a danger when you have one of these level of guys of being either um, one of two things. One, he overshadows the party and makes everybody feel weak and pointless. And two, he becomes a crutch to the party, Yeah. right? And then the party just makes him do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Whenever you have one of these high level, like as much as we shit on the Hobbit movies for Gandalf going off and doing his fucking thing and showing us him dealing with the necromancer and then coming back and then being there for a little bit and fucking off again and doing his own thing. Yeah. Unfortunately for a D&D campaign, you have to do that kind of shit. You do. Absolutely. Because if your wizard is there, your high level wizard is there, there's no reason your party should have any trouble with three trolls around a campfire. No. Right? Just a flick of the wrist and they're stone. Like there's no reason why it should be an issue. So I I like if I'm gonna have one of these, and and in my world, Brad, you don't know this. There are seven mages in my world that are gallivanting around that are all this level and they're all color-coded and everything, but they all fly under the radar, right? And they are high power level um NPCs, right? And they all have their different personalities and uh, moods and desires and goals. And unless you um, either have a way to benefit their goal or uh, interrupt their goal in some way, shape, or form, uh, interrupt them getting their goal, um, they're not even going to give you really the time of day. One of them will, but like the rest of them won't, right? Like this council of wizards, they, they couldn't give two shits about a random band of adventures so why at deific levels right the deities don't really care about your adventures either unless they have a purpose for them my deities are more involved to the individual populace than these wizards are yeah right so like it's it's uh something you have to be aware of um because you you don't want them to be a crutch you don't want your party relying on them um for mechanical reasons um, and you don't want them to overshadow for interest in the game reasons, right? We all know what it's like when you're playing, there's two wizards in the party. One of you is a illusionist and the other one's an evoker, right? When it comes to a combat, one of you is shining and the mm-hmm. other is literally invisible because that's an illusion spell. The illusionist is not going to be doing very much, no. but the evoker will. Now, I mean, write me a nasty post on reddit if you disagree with that and i kind of do illusionists are badass and fucking amazing they really are amazing but uh you get my point right like the flashy showy magic of an evoker is often going to at least out show 
the the subtlety of an enchanter or a, a illusionist just the same as your nideific level wizard is going to outshow your level six wizard that's super excited that he could cast fireball now mm-hmm. james what about you dangers for having one of these uh, high level wizards well, as you guys have stated, the danger is making everyone either useless or that along those lines. The way I would handle it would be to have the that powerful wizard only do something for your party for a very expensive price. The life of the person you love the most, whether it be yourself, your mom, your dad, a fellow party member, that person dies and can never be re- resurrected, can never be revived. They are wiped from existence. One of the good things to do is uh, use the deck of many things as inspiration here. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. Have your wizard draw from the deck of many things. Like, uh, like you, you could just buy a deck. You could draw a card from it. And that item that you draw the card from is what your wizard is going to get you to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you've gotten like uh, the one that gives you a lordship, okay, well now it has to do with him attaining a lordship somewhere. He needs it. You have the ability to give it to him, figure it out, right? Um, If it's death, well, that is what it is, right? Um, You're going to need to have someone die, right? But I also like using uh, hard to find, but still relatively common items. Like there should be an eccentricity to a wizard that is that level and that removed from time and reality, right? Like uh, Elminster has bounced around all sorts of realities. He might just want, I want the left eyebrow of a Corrid. Why do you need the left eyebrow of Corrid? It's a spell thing you wouldn't understand, but that's what I need. I don't want to spend the time to go get one. So if you want me to answer your question of where to find this other MacGuffin, you have to go get this MacGuffin for me. Go, Mm. right? Nice. So guys, this has been a lot of me talking. do you guys have any final thoughts on Toral? How well do you think it's been designed? Is there any uh, thing you really wish that they're going to get to soon? Uh, maybe more information about a beer because there's really not a whole hell of a lot about the sister twin planet that uh, shares a sky with uh, Toral. So uh, guys, any final thoughts on Toral and the Forgotten Realms as a whole? I know I like the twin planet. I'd like to for sure know more about that. But I also like how there's not a lot of current 5e information, so you can put a lot in yourself. Mm, It allows you a lot easier to customize the world and not have a player say, well, according to the book. Yeah, I'm with you on that, because I think the Spell Plague really gave us a great opportunity, especially with the Second Sundering, right, where there is so much that is undefined and unclear. For a homebrewer, this is money. Because you have all the history to use at your disposal. There's tons, books and books and books, right? About what the world used to be. So you can pull on that, but then you can invent it to be whatever you want and just say, second sundering. And, and know what? If, if you want to use these bullshit fantasy places, you don't have to use the bullshit fantasy names. That's true too. Right? If you want to just take that country and put it into your homebrew world, note for note, just with different names, no Easily one will do. ever know the difference. I've no. done it. So why not? Right. Anyways, that'll be it for this discussion on Toral, but there are even more pieces of lore to Dungeons and Dragons. So subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be returning to our favorite scaly skin playable race in Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition and how they've changed under Fizzbands, the Dragonborn. 
If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, as well as a store for some awesome merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word on to everyone you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcatcher apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. Okay. So if you were given the choice in a let's play for the channel, would you rather have the audience create your character, like the class and race, or the backstory? Because I feel like it would be a challenge either way where you don't get to choose one. You get to choose the other, but not one. Shit, that's a good question, James. I I have an answer for this because I okay. Let's roll. Let's roll. All right, let's roll for it. Got a thirteen. I don't have a die. Some guys didn't have their dice ready. I also got a thirteen. Okay, Brad, roll off. Sixteen. Also a sixteen. Fuck off. Roll off again. Thirteen. You go first. Okay, cool. Uh, So my options are um, class and race. Mm-hmm. or background and backstory yeah those you get one of the two options i would rather than choose class and race yeah you'd rather have your own backstory i'd rather come up with my own backstory uh and background for my character just because uh class and race i could kind of figure out how to fit that into an interesting backstory that's appealing to me um if i'm playing someone else's backstory it feels weird it feels kind of like i'm 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 acting out a role that wasn't written for me, and I, uh, it I I mean it ultimately depends on the backstory, but um, I would choose class and race. I'm 100% with you. I would 100% choose class and race. I often have a hard time deciding what class and race I want to play because I want to play them all. So I'm okay with somebody else throwing one at me, and if I can take that and build a character around that, I'll find that much easier than getting a background handed to me and picking a class and race. Cool. I'm the exact opposite. I'd rather them pick my backstory after I give them a class because I don't want to be a fighter. I, I hate martial classes and fighter is the <laughs> peak of my hate. So being given a fighter, I won't make a fun backstory, but choosing a wizard, a cleric, and them saying, here's your motivation. Here's your backstory. I think would be more fun of a challenge, especially for a let's play one shot for the channel. Um, one, we should 100% do this. Two, I will DM it. Three, we should uh, have people write in to the subreddit to tell us kind of what they would want. And I, I, I think we could, I think we could have a poll going for yeah. it. We'll figure that I'm out. Down. Um, and ultimately, four, just because you start as a gnome fighter doesn't mean you have to continue as a gnome fighter. Multiclass. Multiclassing is a thing, mm-hmm. and. Race changing is also a thing. Although 5E is definitely weighted towards sticking to a single class and moving with it. Um, I don't know, man, you can get some really fun builds, especially with uh, the kind of stuff we're getting in Tasha's and and new releases now. You can get some real fun builds going. So um, you may start as a fighter, but there's no reason why you can't be a spell slinging gish class um, with, you know, second win and... Uh, even be a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye.